You're listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. incredibly difficult at the moment to break stories particularly with the new challenges out there but I do think the standards have never been high across the board I was one of the first journalists on Twitter and I thought it was a really useful tool it's a good way to connect with your audience and it sort of expands you as a journalist you're never going to be a millionaire like writing a book these days the market's completely changed and I do think it's something that you do far more out of ambition and your own personal goal and achievement Hi there. On this episode, I'm speaking to John Cross, Chief Football Writer of the Daily Mirror. He was out in Russia covering a national obsession, the England football team, and we discussed the change of relationships between the team, the press and the supporters during the early days of the competition, how social media has affected covering a tournament like the World Cup, the skills you need, the industry in general, writing a book and much, much more. You can find John at John Cross Mirror on Twitter. You can find me at Mr. Richard Clark on all social. Go to mrrichardclark.com to read my blog, listen to my other podcasts, or sign up to my digital sports newsletter. I spoke to John in the first week of the tournament. England was still involved, and hopefully, when you listen to this, they still are. Here's John. I am John Cross, Chief Football Writer of the Daily Mirror, and I write about football, lots of football, really. So uh, I enjoy my job. You are out at the World Cup at the moment. Do you still have that enthusiasm, that excitement? Because you've been in this trade, this profession, a long time. But World Cup is top of the shop, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's. I think you're right in the bank. I have been doing the job for a long time and I haven't been chief football writer for as long as I've been doing the job. But I, I guess I've been doing England now for, um, well, the best part of 20 years. And it's very up and down with, with, with England. But what I would say is I think generally people, myself included, probably prefer club football. Um, but as soon as it hits a tournament, I get swept along by by England. And I absolutely love covering England and international football and major tournaments. And I have to say, we've probably had a couple of lows where it hasn't been that enjoyable. Um, particularly, I'm thinking 2014 when England went out of the group stage. And kind of, you know, that that was so disappointing. Euro 2016 was even worse, losing to Iceland. And I just think this tournament so far has been great fun. I, I, I'm not expecting the world from England. I'm really not. So I'm not getting carried away. Although I am seriously enjoying it simply because it's just been a breath of fresh air. I think to see the players playing with a smile on their faces again, they seem happier. The manager, Gareth Southgate, has been a revelation in my view so far. He hasn't got a classic squad, so I'm not getting carried away. I'm not expecting to see England lift the trophy in mid-July. But what he has done is reintroduced a bit of fun, and that's the main important thing, I think. The England team itself, it seems to have... Well, the reputation over here or the, the what we've received over here in the UK is the fact that they've done a very good job with regard to press and team relations, playing darts, going bowling, uh, having everyone available Super Bowl style ahead of the tournament. Is that true and is that very different? It is very different. Um, it, is, it is true. And I think it's born out of a few things, really. I think the... Press relations um, in Euro 2016 hit an all-time low, and it was really strange because there were good people, I think, in, in sort of kind of in the media department, 
Um, and before the tournament itself, um, uh, it, Roy Hodgson was on a charm offensive where he went out to lunch, it was all working well, and suddenly you get into a tournament environment that for whatever reason, I have my suspicions, um, that basically everything went on to sort of lockdown. The players were told not to talk about darts, they had their own darts tournament, and it all became a bit secretive, inhibitive, and ridiculous, to be honest. Um, and so I actually think that this, you know, playing a game of darts isn't just a bit of fun. It's also a little bit symbolic. It's the new regime saying, actually, this is what we do. We do it differently to the previous regime. Um, you couldn't even kind of talk about darts with the old lot. And now you're actually playing darts against the new lot. Did we, did we ask for games of darts, as some TV pundits have suggested over the weekend? Um, to try and mix with the players and bending. No, that's just childish. It's ridiculous. I don't, we're not expecting to be, I don't think, matey with the whole squad. I think you have your favourites, you have players you always get on a bit better with and most, you know, some better than others. Don't know some, some of them at all, but it, you know, it's just, it's just the way it is. And I just think this all plays into a new spirit of openness. Gareth Southgate is someone that embraces the notion, having been a TV pundit, worked in the media himself extensively, um, kind of in between managerial roles, if you like. Um, he was great fun, by the way, when he worked at ITV, when he'd be on trips, other pundits would keep themselves to themselves on the ITV roster. He would be coming down to a, uh, down to the beach with us to play cricket and the game of football and join in and have a great giggle. Honestly, he's really good fun. He's really liked and respected by the group. And I think he actually sees a confident media persona and presence as representative of a player with confidence and with inner belief. And he sees it as a real positive from that player um, to actually have a good media profile, to, to be able to speak and express themselves confidently um, and willingly. And I think he sees that as, as, as a serious and proper part of the job. Going back to the NFL approach, the, the, the kind of the, the group interviews, that again was something that sort of kind of self-get initiated. He basically said to his media team, how can, you know, what do you want to do? What would be your dream? And, you know, it set me out your dream of kind of how you want the media to operate and how do you want the media operations to operate and I'll try and facilitate it for you. They went in with kind of the um, vision of trying to sort of replicate things and how they work in America. Um, Gareth Southgate knows that. I think he'd been on an NFL field trip himself along with also with, of course, the FA uh, media staff saw how well it worked. I think the players really liked it. St George's Park the day that it happened. I mean, you basically put all the players on 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 show, get all the journalists there, it, it, you know, basically in the room, give them forty five minutes, or certainly did in the FA's case, and basically said, go and speak to whoever you want about anything. Is that completely open house? Takes you on absolutely no problem. And um, we we fed some through some really good, open, honest interviews which were, you know, just a complete, it felt through, like a breakthrough, really, in media relations. There was that first little test, though, wasn't there, with the picture of the team sheet ahead of the Panama game. The press would turn around and say, well, that's fair game, open training session. Uh, it was available. We reported it. Uh, it's just something that happened, and, and it's our job to uh, exploit that for uh, news purposes. What was interesting, though, is the general public 
from what I saw and read, the general public seemed to be a little bit more with the England team, whereas they were saying you guys should be on our, on our side. Do you do you accept that? Yeah, I, I, I do accept that um, to, to to a degree. Can I just say? Can I just before I happily answer that? Absolutely, but I just want to sort of point out that maybe I saw it as the first test of these relations actually occurred um, after one of those interviews at SGP, which was basically when Danny Rose spoke. He spoke not to absolutely everybody, just to selection of newspapers, but newspapers then carried his interview about his uh, battle with depression and how he'd found the last year or so very, very difficult. Now, I am utterly, utterly convinced that under a previous regime that that would have been seen as incredibly incendiary, negative, and you know mischief-making almost by the press. This regime... Um, saw it as uh, openness, saw him as being honest, and the press treated it sensitively, using words like brave, open, honest, courageous. Danny Rose emerged from that interview with incredible credit, and I think that in itself was kind of proof as to why being open with the media and opening the doors to the media can be incredibly positive for both sides. It really was. It felt like a light bulb moment, I think, for parts of the media. But going back to Richard, what you said about the um, team sheet issue, it's an interesting one. This I think that people, a lot of people, do not understand the inner workings of sometimes the media. And so let me lay it out for you: is that basically during the World Cup, FIFA has very strict guidelines on what a team must do for the media. One of those things, quite apart from doing a press conference virtually every day um, is having um, open training. You are allowed to close your training on particular days, but what countries normally do, the polite ones like England, um, they, they on the first day they throw open the doors and say to all the locals, you come along, you're hosting us in your town and we want to invite you into, a, into our workshop if you like. This is how we operate. And then basically, you know, they open the doors. On other days, it's 15 minutes of open training at the, uh, you know, the beginning of the session. England will always be, in my view, one of the most recognisable, one of the most popular nations to cover. So not only are you seeing English media, you're seeing international media, seeing hundreds of journalists, camera people, um, and, and so on, really. And for that first 15 minutes, everything is open, basically. So the notion that somehow that they're basically, I think people, a lot of people get the wrong stick that the, the English media have somehow spied on Steve Holland is just ridiculous. Um, it was an open session. He did, yes, have his team sheet on show. The photographers took a picture of it. And basically, as it proved, you know, it wasn't the team sheet. It was just a list of names because it didn't represent the starting 11 um, for, for the Panama game, uh, the, you know, the following weekend. So, you know, it's just it's just ridiculous, really, in my view. But you're right, it does it brought up a wider issue in that basically Gav Southgate gave a radio interview when he was asked about it. And he then said, at the first he said, I don't have a problem with it at all. But then went on to say, basically the media must decide whether they're supportive or not. And then it, I thought it was really interesting, bearing in mind there was a lot of backlash that's what created the backlash, in my view. A lot of the more 
um, you know, sort of industrial language on Twitter and social media came after Southgate's comments rather than the actual original story, which did create a bit of a storm itself, but that's how it was. And so then it took on a life of its own, in my view, and took on a different meaning. And the, the, the sort of the journalists, myself included, got a lot of backlash from it. And I just think then that Southgate, at his pre-match press conference, and a couple of well, a day later, basically clarified, moved to clarify, and said, "Look, it's an open session. I apologise to the media for if they've been getting abused on social media. Um, you know, I would expect them to to report it. We can't ask them to to protect it. Um, that's that's how it is. So, you know, I, I do think that, that basically a lot of people do, I just don't think they understand that it was a completely open session. It was open to the media." Everything was was sort of fair game, and to suggest that it's the English media is also missing the point because the, the, the Spanish, you know, media did something. Ash reported it. Uh, the Argentinian, the Argentinian coach um, was also pictured with a team sheet. Uh, the Belgian uh, media also revealed um, their starting lineup in advance. So, yeah, what 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 do we expect? I, I do think that sort of you know, I think people will always want to know. Who is in the England starting lineup? And I do think sometimes it, you know, I, I think it's our duty, I think it's our job, I think, to report the news. Do we report absolutely everything that we hear? Um, no, we don't. You know, so you, I do think there has to be a balance. But I think if you are interested in the England team, then I do think that you would want to know. The World Cups every four years, they're a little bit of a, a line in the sand in terms of digital and social media. So how has social changed from a reporter's perspective from now compared to Brazil or 2010? I think it's evolved very much. And I do think now it's become a sort of a, a medium in its own right, whereas I think previously, sort of in, in previous sort of kind of tournaments years ago, it's been, um, it's been a difficult one. Um, so... You know, I, I, I think it's always a test. I always think that also the, uh, I always think it's very, very healthy social media and it allows, you know, you can see your readership, you can see the views, you can take an acid test, call it what you like. I think you'd be foolish and naive not to, not to sort of kind of tap into some views some, sometimes. I think also, you know, in my experience, social media can be a poisonous, vicious and nasty place. And I think some of the abuse, you know, sort of kind of you, you take on social media just sort of can drag you down and be very, very negative. These days, I kind of, you know, tried to sort of scale back on it, believe it or not. And um, it's not it's not the be-all and end-all. And um, I, I think sometimes I think, you know, I'm surprised that some of my colleagues, how badly they take it. I've tried to sort of rise above it. Certain incidents will get to you. But um, but you know it is an interesting interesting medium and it's become absolutely massive. I remember when social media first exploded and became a tool that reporters could use. I remember you proudly saying, "I reply to everybody. I reply to everybody." So, when did that stop? <laughs> it stopped with lots of accusations. Really. <laughs> um, it did, you know. I'd, I remember probably being a bit smart ass basically, which is hopefully not my personality at all, really, to be honest with you. Um, for some people, kind of, you know, if they accuse you getting wrong and getting something wrong and then it proves to be right, then, you know, you kind of go and revisit it and something like that, or kind of always try and sort of reply and respond to people. 
I, I think it, when, when you get as many replies as I do, I get I see some frustrated people say, "Oh, you replied to you so many times, you never reply, you're rude, that sort of thing." You just don't see it. You miss however many replies they've seen because sometimes if you're busy, it just gets too much. And I have to say, when you have sort of kind of you know days when you're getting loads and loads of sort of abusive replies, I just don't look at it. Unfortunately, so it's probably the minority, but the minority can spoil it for, for for the majority. But I do think it's a really valuable tool in the basic. I do think it's a, it's something that I think footballers and sort of sport people in general kind of really tap into. And I think uh, you know it, it's it's great that you can kind of get that barometer. I think it's really interesting that you did feel a barometer about the team sheet from Twitter. And it was interesting that basically, I think the fans, some fans basically saying, oh, kind of would rather not know. I'm not sure I genuinely believe that. Because if you actually then posted something on Twitter, then this is the team, I guarantee you they'd look. Well, that's their natural curiosity. You know, newspapers would be foolish not to know their market. Um, and so I guess, you know, it'll be interesting to see you know that I mean it's you know for example just to broaden out a little bit I mean I think sometimes the, the you know there's been a sort of kind of you know a lot of fury say about the sort of in the build up to the World Cup about Raheem Sterling for example and I think some papers I think I don't know whether they sort of kind of mean to do it necessarily but could be perceived as targeting Sterling as, as someone and I think at, you know some newspapers go the opposite way with the explosion of digital newspapers going online first, now how's that affected your job comparing this World Cup to the last World Cup to the one before? Eight years ago, maybe not all the newspapers were digital first, but now it's a matter of updates during the day, not just a, a report on the whistle and a, and a follow-up. It, it must have changed the job entirely. Yeah, it has. It's, um, it, you know, you have to write things... Um, differently, you have to write, you know, live reports. It's increased my job, my my workload. I would say threefold, probably fourfold. Um, you know, if you go to an average press conference, basically, you know, sometimes the sort of press conference is split into two. You know, sort of an open one for the broadcast media, and then um, sort of kind of goes into into newspapers, sort of for a separate. Well, I have to write something quick and, uh, you know, sort of turn it around quickly from the broadcast for the website to do it live and then perhaps a more considered piece combining the two. So the stuff that you've seen on camera and then also stuff that is said afterwards through the newspapers. So it's changed it. I do think sometimes the, the, the web market is different. For example, you might have to file something uh, quickly um, for, the, for the website. Um, you know, sort of five things we've learned, short pocket bite sizes. They don't want like long, great reams of, of copy. I think they, their market is very much sort of kind of in short bite size pieces. So, it, you know, I think it's, it's changed beyond all recognition in my view, um, over sort of the, the last few years. And it's interesting also kind of, I guess, kind of the digital market. You know, sort of what they what they tweet is is influential is to try and get to people to read it. I, I guess, and I've just noticed. I think in general, you know, quite a few people sort of kind of try and tease a lot more on Twitter to get you to sort of kind of click on it rather than actually kind of give the give the sort of the, the story or kind of the headline away um, within that within that tweet. So I, I guess it's all about kind of trying to get people to have a look at the piece. 
And the skill set must have changed as well because you come in as a writer, but it's not acceptable these days just to write. You've, you've got to have social media skills, but also you've, you've got to promote yourself on the radio. You've got to do video blogs either for the newspaper. You've got to go on television as well. So every journalist is a multimedia journalist now, surely. Yeah, I, I, my job has changed in that regard. I mean, I think people always think how kind of, you know, I, I get a lot of stick on sort of social media about kind of you just you just sort of kind of writing stuff for clicks and click clickbait and that sort of thing. And I have to say, I always sort of kind of slightly laugh at that because that to me is as nonsensical as saying like criticizing me for a headline on a PC or online or in the paper. I genuinely, honestly, don't read the headline. write the headlines rather in the same way that also I just no idea what what honestly what how many clicks you get on a story. Maybe I should. Maybe that's a failing. Management do. I can honestly, hand on heart, say I've got no idea what generates clicks and what works. What works and you know what sort of clicks they get. It's just not my business. It's not what drives me. So yes. It, my job has changed in many ways and I realise I guess you know some things are going to be more popular than others is obvious isn't it that basically Arsenal you know gets a lot of you know sort of traction on, on sort of kind of social media and on websites like Liverpool does I think you know I think Arsenal's not as popular as Liverpool Man United but probably wouldn't be too far behind um, so that's obvious but in terms of actual clips and clickbait I just find that a nonsensical argument because I just don't know what it represents. But yeah, you're right in that basically I, I was one of the first journalists on Twitter and I thought it was a really useful tool just because I thought it's a good way to connect with your audience, it's a good way to sort of kind of establish sort of a link with certain people and sort of have uh, a way in there. But also it's just, you, you know, I think it's a really good sort of branch out and it sort of expands you as a journalist. I enjoy, you know, a sort of good, good few years doing radio very regularly. I really like the medium of radio. I think it's a really good medium and you can put your points across well and extensively, maybe even more so than on TV. You know, maybe I've got the face of radio, I don't know. But it's, um, you, you know, I do think it, it's great for profiles, great for journalists. And the fact that journalists sometimes are sought you know, for, for their expertise and, and sort of kind of insight into it is incredibly flattering. And so it's something that I've really embraced on, on that front as well. Uh, just talking about skill set changing, I, I remember reading a piece a few years ago and someone was saying, well, the skill you need these days is not writing skills, it's not shorthand, it's not anything like that. What you actually need is charm because... Every football league club, every Premier League club, every international club will have a press officer, a communications team, and the media will be managed. No one's walking across car parks trying to get players anymore. And what you need is charm, the ability to manage your own reputation, to get the most out of your relationship with those communication staff. It, it, and that did seem to hold true to me, the, the, the fact that you... you you just need to build relationships with people in, but it's different people. It used to be with the players themselves, and now it's with agents or or, commu or communications department staff. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I do think that people don't realise that perhaps the, um, you know, I would always put at the top of any list of, of kind of you know what 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 makes a good journalist or what makes a good sort of kind of journalist work 
is 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 good exclusives really. Um, it, it's what sort of drives I think our business to be honest. And I think there's many many ways to sort of kind of try and get those. And it's kind of you know sort of kind of establishing good contacts and establishing good links is is incredibly important. You know the most important you know route um, to getting those sort of stories in my view. So you know I. I think people who actually know me rather than sort of the persona on kind of social media realise that I actually always try and be sort of uh, punctual, polite um, and sort of very open, sort of try to be charming if I can be friendly and, and, you know, courteous, then I always try to be so. And I think sometimes journalists, I think, you know, can become sort of unpopular as a breed by not always offering that, that sort of courtesy, really. Um, I think we can be seen as sometimes bullshit and arrogant and I'd like to think if someone was describing me who actually knew me that that wouldn't be how you would describe me really I think we, you know you can't overemphasize how important it is for a journalist to offer kind of that sort of friendliness and that kind of um, charm if you like sort of thing really and sort of you know be the and, and sort of kind of they were helpful to work with, really. I think it's a, it's a good skill set to have. And I think if you can sort of kind of offer that fairness. I mean, another thing I always think about sort of being a journalist, if, if, you know, you can establish good contact with, with that child, but also the biggest mistake you can make, and, and you know, it, if ever I've made this mistake, then please just sort of forgive me, but I also think there's always two sides to every story. So I do think that it's sort of the very fact that you kind of, should offer right to reply, you know, where possible. It's not always possible, um, you, you know, but sometimes you might hear something from within a club. I mean, putting it to that club and where you've held it, heard it elsewhere from the club, well, it's, it's going to be a waste of time, really. Because as long as you've heard and sourced it within that club, well, there's no good really sometimes putting it through the front door. Sometimes you might offer that courtesy, but, but with a call just to say what you're doing, but, you, you know, you've already had that sort of kind of, you know, sort of tip or, or story from, from that end. So what would be the point in sort of kind of offering someone kind of the response, if you like, really? So, you know, I, I, I just think, as you know, our job has, has changed beyond all recognition. And I think you just sort of kind of got to offer that courtesy, I think. You are courteous and you, you've got good social media chops, but you are... You're still a scuffler at heart, aren't you? They're scufflers and dukes. I, I interviewed, I interviewed Henry Winter, who's the Duke's Duke. Well, you're proudly the scuffler scuffler, aren't you? Yeah, I still like getting stories. This is a really good buzz about getting a good story. And it's sort of the story, you know, is right and it's, 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 you know, sort of kind of stood up in the day or whatever it might be. I still think that's, that's always been my grounding, really. I mean, I, I had a good grounding on local papers, you know, so I started on the Lincoln Gazette many years ago, and I actually started on news, and I also think that basically starting on news gives you a bit of a newsier edge. I think my strength it will always be in sort of kind of recognising a decent story, hopefully, and then basically sort of kind of seeing that as a, as a news edge and giving that sort of kind of a, a news angle, if you, if you like. Whereas I think Henry sort of thing, I, I I think it would be wrong to, you know, dismiss Henry as kind of someone who doesn't re- recognise a good news story. Um, he's, he's absolutely one of the best journalists I've, I've ever come across and could, could ever wish to meet. You know, I'm not just saying that because he's a good friend of mine, but, um, but I've got absolute respect for him. But I would say that, he, he you know, he his greatest strength, I think, is, is in his writing and, and his contacts. 
and I think may, maybe perhaps my my greater strength is is perhaps in in stories. So you know the fact that kind of I still you know get good you know like to think I can offer good stories is is, is something I'm sort of proud of really. You know been on a sort of a, a red top national red top for twenty years and it's. Uh, it never sort of kind of never gets any easier. It's become more of a challenge, more difficult, I would say, by far. But I do think if you get a really good story that you're proud of, then it still gives me a great buzz. Yeah, just if anyone doesn't know, a scuffer is, uh, as it sounds, someone okay. whose uh, elbow is out trying to get the story and the Duke is more the columnist pontificating. Um, is it easy? By the way, by the way. Yeah, go on. Really, because it did only well. I was just going to say that sort of we were sort of almost christened Henry and um, I don't know someone like Paul Hayward, for example. I also think he's one of the best of his generation. Is uh, sort of as a grand duke, so it's always sort of kind of taking the mickey. I actually invented the, the term scuffler, and I did it <laughs> because a, a former sport editor once suggested that basically he thought, and he's wrong, by the way, and I told him so, um, that basically I was getting too big for my boots early on because basically I'd done particularly well whatever you know sort of early on in my American career and I thought that was the biggest insult that I've ever heard because I do not ever I don't like to think become too egotistical or big for my boots and I was really really offended and I proudly told him that I will always be a scuffler and he has never let me forget that and he always tells me about sort of kind of always jokes about being a scuffler and all that whenever I see him on European trips these days so, you know, kind of that's where he's born from, basically, in journalistic terms. And as, as I was saying, scufflers, elbows out, trying to get the news stories, trying to get, yeah. get the news line from every press conference. A duke is there, a columnist, a little bit pontificating, stroking their chin, as the scufflers would say, I'm sure. Making a living off our stories. <laughs> okay. I'm not going there. That's your argument. But, but my, my point is... Is it easy to cross between the two? Because most people will come through the scuffling route and end up as dukes. But not all scufflers can turn into dukes, and some people emerge as dukes very young and have never never really been scufflers. Normally they are, but not always. Well, no, I do think it's you know difficult, really. I look at some of the sort of the, the writing these days, and I wonder how on earth did they ever establish themselves as sort of kind of such a writer. But some people can sort of kind of you know, sort of do both roles. I mean, Danny Taylor on The Guardian, I mean, he's sort of kind of had some fantastic stories and fantastic projects. Um, and he's also one of the best columnists, I think, out there. He's, he's, he's observed a column every Sunday. He's brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Um, Paul Hayward, for example, you know, sort of kind of, as I say, is a fantastic writer. Ollie Holt is, is another one that kind of cuts across both. So he worked his way up through, through a local paper, and then also, I think, has been and still gets good stories and good interviews. So he can, you know, sort of cut across both. So I do think there's, it's a rare breed that can write brilliantly, but also get stories. And I think there's a few like that out there, you know, sort of Henry, you know, I think can do do that. And, uh, you know, Matt Dickinson can, can do that on the Times for example, it's very few and far between, but um, sort of kind of, uh, I think that's what makes them stand out so much. I, I genuinely don't think the sort of kind of the, the standard writing or the standard story getting has, has ever been higher. I do think it's incredibly difficult at the moment, sort of kind of, to break stories, particularly with the new challenges 
um, out there, but I, I do think that the standards have never been high across people across the board. That is the challenge of social media again, isn't it? Because there's a there's a whole raft of journalists who are taking their quotes from social media, writing a story around it, add some pictures to it, produce it, it goes out. Now, that is that still story-getting, in your opinion, sitting there and monitoring the feeds? No, not really. I get, you know, sometimes it is... I think sometimes you can sort of seize upon the germ of a story when you see it and, like, kind of seize on it and sort of develop it. And I think that's good story-getting. I do think there's kind of it's a difference of kind of going and getting a story which is original, which is different, um, as to you know picking some comments up on, on on social media. I think there's a world of difference, really, to be honest. So I do think it's uh, it, you know it's a difficult sort of changing environment that we live in. But I do think that sort of some have re- reacted and embraced it, and and some haven't. But I do think that kind of it's such a world of difference, I think, from a story that, that is kind of, you know, sort of out there. I'm trying to think of a really good example, but, you know, that just hasn't been seen or heard anywhere, you know, sort of recently. I do think that kind of, uh, what am I trying to think of, of, of decent sort of, you know, sort of good football political story, maybe something like The Winter Break, for example, that was a good sort of kind of get. And again, that was something that was kind of completely... Um, completely different, really, um, sort of out there. So, again, that's sort of, I've got much more respect, um, I think, I must say, for, for people that kind of get a story completely out of the blue than, than something, the germ of a story that's been rewritten or, or seized upon from, you know, sort of social media outlets. How did you find the process of writing a book? Because you wrote a biography of Arsene Wenger. It's gone down very well from what I gather. You're always tweeting about another language that it's been printed in. But that's that's the longest form of journalism, of course. Yeah, it, it's given me so much pride and um, great satisfaction um, to do it. It's something that I always wanted to do, I think, Sort of down the years, sometimes people people have been disparaging about my writing or whatever. I thought I'm going to show you, but actually it was my lifelong ambition to 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 write a book, and it's something that I thought I could just you know if, if the papers are tomorrow's chip papers, and I don't believe that they are by the way, um, but basically it, it kind of a, a book is there that's something that will, will always stand the test of time, and it was just something that I thought. I want to do this and make myself feel proud, make my family feel proud. And I, I like to think I've done that. It was a really difficult challenge. You know, it was, it was, it was at a time, you know, I felt like I had a lot of insight to offer around sort of Arsene Wenger and around Arsenal generally. And then basically I thought, I, you know, another journalist suggested I should do it because they thought I, you know, kind of had so many anecdotes and so many stories that I must do it before someone else does. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful to, to that journalist, Sam Wallace, actually. And um, and basically, you know, sort of kind of for saying that I should do and, you know, seized on the opportunity. It gave me a great deal of satisfaction. It was kind of around an emotional time. It took me a long, long time to do it because obviously I'm very, very busy always with the day job. It took me the best part of two years to kind of put together some ideas, to write something, to do interviews, to get sort of kind of go through the process of, you know, sort of checking with Arsene Wenger that he was happy with it. And Arsene Wenger actually, you know, a few people checked with Arsene Wenger that they could, you know, speak to, speak to me. Uh, sorry, they, they checked with him first before speaking to me, which was absolutely fine. 
and um, it, you know it was a it was a long drawn out process, but a process that I sort of kind of went through, you know, in sort of kind of difficult time in my life, just because I'd sort of had, you know I'd lost my dad, who was sort of kind of my inspiration between sort of behind football and sort of you know involvement with Arsenal. He he grew up, you know, sort of in the very next road to Arsenal. That's where he was born and brought up, you know. So it was. Um, you know, sort of the groundings were there, and I thought it was a, it was a sort of a difficult emotional time. I thought if ever something's going to inspire me, then I think that that maybe that should, and kind of that process only sort of strengthened my resolve and my you know determination to put something down, and sort of maybe you know in sort of the first page, you know, is dedicated to him, and kind of I just thought that's something I really really want to do, and it's fulfilled a lifetime ambition to be honest. And, uh, you know, it's given me a bit of profile. I've enjoyed it. People always say, oh, you kind of just used Arsene Wenger to, to uh, you know, to make your fortune on, you know, sort of out making books. I can tell you, and anyone that will tell, you know, sort of has done a book, you're never going to be a millionaire writing a, writing a book these days. The market is completely changed. And I do think it's something that you do far more out of ambition and your own personal goal and achievement rather than kind of for financial gain. Just turning to newspapers and the future of newspapers, Henry Winter was very bullish about newspapers, saying the Times is making money, and certainly it does seem that there are economic models and pricing models that newspapers have finally adapted to because they were very much hit by the first wave of, of the internet and hit in a negative way. Do you feel strongly about the strength of newspapers as a business in this country? I do really. I think that people always think, you know, sort of kind of newspapers are dying, and that's the accusation you get on social media a lot. And I don't, I don't think that's true necessarily. I still am someone that you know buys newspapers, and at weekends particularly, I pull over every word. I don't think that you can sort of always necessarily see that online. People would be surprised about the lack of crossover um, between sort of kind of newspaper readers and sort of, you know, online readers. And I think even sometimes, like me, if you read a lot online, it doesn't prevent you also from buying a newspaper. Have sort of circulation sort of figures, you know, gone down? Of course they have. But it's about trying to sort of find that middle ground and making them successful. And I still think that the fact that recently... And for example, you know, the Mirror's been involved in a sort of long-running takeover of kind of the Express newspapers group. Well, they're not going to do that unless they feel that newspapers can be significant, sort of kind of successful significantly in the long term. So, you know, that should tell people, you know, kind of what where the market stands. And I still think they can be successful and profitable. And if you are, you know, say, for example, if you've got a morning commute on a train, you pick some of these newspapers up and fantastic read. You know, sort of can pull over every word or every page in a way that you couldn't on your phone or kind of just try to read something online. I think there's different challenges now. I think, for example, the Metro, for example, you know, is a, is a, is a free newspaper that's given away a lot in England across the country that people pick up on their morning commute. I would strongly argue that that doesn't always offer the, uh, you know, sort of insight, service and kind of quality that uh, sort of a, a national newspaper can. You know, I, I'd sort of kind of look at stuff that, that often the, sort of the Metro will pick some, something up off the first editions, if you like, and use that in their kind of morning edition. But 
that won't always kind of, you know, sort of cover off what a newspaper has and the depth and sort of coverage and detail that a national newspaper can offer. So I, I still think that there's very much a place for newspapers in the fabric of our British society, and I sort of kind of take pride in that. I'll always like the fact that I, I grew up and remain a, a newspaper man and, you know, still very much enjoy that sort of aspect of it. Is it still hard to retain the quote-unquote special treatment for sports journalists where you get extra quotes yeah there, there's always the issue of these are the sunday quotes when's the whole back with these are the monday's quotes these are the daily's quotes that that endless stream because obviously for people who don't know a press conference might be split up into various different sections and god forbid anyone breaks that particular embargo um is that is that harder to maintain yeah very much so i think that um journalists from abroad when they come into our press conferences is find it absolutely hilarious and we can't quite understand you know their working either for example I went recently to head of Real Madrid v Liverpool in the Champions League I went to Madrid for their press day and um, everyone was up that day every player that basically was up that day it was just completely open access there was no chance of holding it even though it was done on the Tuesday the game was on the Saturday everything was done live so there's no chance of holding stuff later in the week. And I couldn't quite understand what, what, you know, where would the interviews come from? You know, that's Tuesday for Wednesday sorted. But what about Thursday's paper? What about Friday? And what about Saturday? I mean, it's just, you know, it was something that, you know, we, we in England sort of have a different approach. So if they did serve up, you know, a football club that had served up Liverpool by contrast, sort of served up with their players on the Monday and throughout the week, Players were held back, embargoed for a certain day. Some players, you know, players were offered exclusively to a certain journalist the club might know, for example. Uh, but generally, if you go to a sort of a, a, a press conference, you know, you're right that basically there'll be a broadcast bit which goes out live on TV and is reported live for those sort of newspapers that you know covering that day. But if it's a Saturday match, you know, would we go and see the manager at a football club, whoever it might be? after the game and they hold those quotes over Sunday for Monday. And, you know, if you're from abroad, people really struggle with that, with that concept. It's a very English thing and uh, very different, I think, to, to lots of the way that sort of people work. But I do think that that also overlooks the, the, the power of our media here. And in football terms, I think the media is incredibly important. I think the Premier League and football, the FA, whoever it might be, recognises that. They see influence and sort of positive output in terms of sort of kind of selling the game, kind of representing views, kind of pushing the message out there, you know, and that's why I think they still respect newspapers and are still willing to deal with newspapers on that level. And that's why they offer extra access to newspapers. You know, sometimes I think, you know, I think we, we, we underestimate, I mean, go back to that Danny Rose interview, for example, which was purely done for newspapers, purely for newspapers. That drove an agenda for about two or three days. And that, that shows you, I still think, that a powerful newspaper piece, whether that be an interview or a story, a really big exclusive, drives the agenda, I think, for days afterwards, whether that be on TV, radio, discussion about the story, about the interview. I think that still, I think that basically the biggest driver in England for kind of the media remains newspapers. That's my passionate belief that basically 
if you see something really strong in a newspaper, the amount then of TV and radio coverage is infinite. Honestly, it's, it's, it's remarkable how much kind of, how many hours that will take up in discussion and kind of on the back of that. And that's driven by newspapers. Another thing that I've heard or I've read with regard to the skill of writing or journalism per se is that it's, well, it's not a skill. People say it's a trade. You can learn plumbing, you can learn being a mechanic and you can learn the trade of being a journalist in that the same angles are exploited again and again and again. I, I personally don't, don't, don't always agree with that really. I, I think it is a particular skill and listen, you, you're going to have a different skill and different style of writing, whether you work for the Times or the Telegraph as compared to the Sun and the Mirror, for example. You know, there's a difference again between the Mail and the Star, for example. It's just, you know, I do think you have to be, you have to be skilled to do it. I think that some of the writers sort of across the titles are incredibly good, incredibly skilled at what they do. And honestly, if you put, you know, someone, you know, very inexperienced, very raw, um, and tried to make them write for, for a national newspaper, well, you just wouldn't, I mean, it'd just be incomprehensible. I mean, it just wouldn't, 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 wouldn't work at all. I mean, I, I was just sort of having a Twitter, you know, before we sort of began the conversation and the Twitter discussion with Jackie Oakley, you know, sort of about commentators and she was sort of raising an issue about kind of, you know, female commentators, for example. And sort of just a bit of an afterthought which I put out there was that basically about the, you know, the job of a commentator. I do think that basically a lot of people watching TV in the front room will fail to realise just how good someone like the likes of John Murray or kind of Clyde Tilsley could possibly be as a commentator. They think it's just a bloke having a discussion about football. So the skills of storytelling are still the skills of storytelling and that's the fundamentals that we all need. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I think it's some of the, the pieces that I read, sort of, you know, through through tournaments, like the background, the anecdotes, the sort of the, the lovely way that they're sort of they're crafted. I still think are really interesting insights into into kind of how you know a team works, how a football team operates, um, for example. So I think the skill, you know, is underrated and undervalued. John Cross, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, MrRichardClark.com.